busy time of year for a lot of us, graduations, open houses. It's real easy sometimes to get out of the routine of being with the Lord and get caught up in life. I just want to encourage you, as I encourage myself, to not forget Jesus day to day. You know, this is a big shot in the arm. It's what Sundays are for. Kind of re-engage us, re-encourage us. But really the battle is Monday through Saturday for how we follow the Lord. And we have our ups, we have our downs, we win some, we lose some. But we've got to keep Christ as the center of our attention. Amen. Amen. All right, well, that was for free. Um, we've got this wonderful reading plan going on. I hope you guys, if you don't have a reading plan, you can get them, I think, out the foyer. We're reading through First and Second Corinthians for quite a minute. Um, I know Eric did a great introduction last week. However, I'm not going to be talking about Corinthians today. I'm going to be talking about the joy of Jesus. Um, I think it'll suffice. So let me ask you a question. How would you finish this sentence? Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by... And just think about that for a minute. Because there's a lot of different biblical ways of answering that question. And depending on, I don't know, personality, all kinds of things, we, we can sometimes get lopsided or one-sided in our picture of who Jesus is. You know, for instance, it would be correct to say that Jesus rejoiced when all his disciples gave up everything to follow him, right? That's in Mark 10, 21 and 22. And it's definitely true that Jesus rejoices when we are faithful in the small things that will prepare us to be faithful in many things. And we can read about that in Matthew 25, 21 as well. We could also say that Jesus was more pleased with the way his father revealed spiritual truths to children and the childlike uh, more than he did to the religious intellectuals. That's in Luke 10, 21. But there's a, a biblical truth that I think is easily overlooked in our thinking about Christ. And I think most Christians know that listening to and even obeying God is something that pleases Jesus. But what if the heart of Jesus actually experiences joy within our weaknesses, within our failures? in a way that we don't really think about. So I'm wondering if we could complete that first sentence like this. That the joy and the consolation and the happiness and the glory of Christ are increased and enlarged by His grace and mercy in forgiving and soothing and consoling His followers here on earth. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. 
I want you to think about a doctor, a medical doctor, compassionate medical doctor who travels to foreign land and he's trying to get deep into the jungle because he wants to reach this primitive tribe because he wants to provide medical help for them. The, the tribes are afflicted with an infectious disease. And so he, he flies in and he brings all of his medical equipment in and uh, he, he gets into the deep into the jungle. He finds them and starts to uh, assess them and he correctly diagnoses the problem. He, he figures it out. He's like, oh, and, and he's, got, he's got the antibiotics and they're with him there and they're prepared. And this is a simple fix for him. Now, again, and also he's independently wealthy, and so he's not here and he's not going to, like, hand out bills. Like, that'll be $1,000, you know. He's independently wealthy, and he doesn't need any kind of financial compensation. And so he goes to the tribe, and he says, "Here's, here's the cure. And he went, and when he went to give the people the care and the healing that they need, they refused because they wanted to fix it themselves, their own way. They wanted to heal in their own way, even though their methods were never going to, they're not going to heal this outbreak of disease. Now, just imagine how the doctor felt. And so he realizes that he can't help and starts to pack up his stuff and he's getting ready to leave. And, but all of a sudden, a couple of brave men from, young men from the tribe, they come up to him and they are willing to receive the care. How do you think the doctor feels right now? I think there's one ginormous word. It's joyous. The doctor's joy is increasing when the sick come to him for his help and his healing. It's the whole reason he came to this little tribe. Now, think of this. How much more would the doctor, how much more joy would he have if the patient was actually one of his own children? Not a stranger, but a member of his own family. Well, I think you, you've, you smart people have figured out where I'm going, right? It's the same with us when it comes to Jesus. We have to come to terms with the fact that he does not become restless and frustrated when we come to him for new forgiveness with our heartache, with our needs, with our emptiness. This is why Jesus came. He came to heal us. Jesus went through absolute, he went through the absolute horrors of a gruesome death. And he came out on the other side just to offer you and me infinite mercy, infinite grace. But there's a deeper point that we've got to make here. Because Jesus doesn't, he doesn't want us to just draw on his mercy and grace that it would somehow justify him dying. He wants us to tap into his grace and mercy because that is who he is. 
Jesus became flesh and blood to draw us to him so that his joy and ours can rise and fall together. He gives the mercy and we receive the mercy. And Christ receives more joy and comfort than we do when we ask him for his help and his mercy. I mean, just think of uh, a loving husband who finds relief and comfort when his wife is healed rather than his own wounds being healed. Christ giving mercy and healing produces more comfort and joy in himself than it produces in us when our sins are being covered by the blood of Jesus. Just think about how much joy peace and comfort you have in knowing that Jesus has saved you. Just think about it. To quote one of my favorite rock bands, ACDC, you were on a highway to hell. I was on a highway to hell. So much joy and peace and comfort comes knowing that Jesus has saved us. It's the most precious and fulfilling source of joy in all of our human existence. Knowing how much joy that produces in us, just think about that, knowing how much it produces in us, compare that to the joy of Jesus when he gets to forgive us daily of our sins. Thomas Goodwin wrote this. He said, The glory and happiness of Christ are enlarged and increased still as his members come to have the purchase of his death more and more laid forth upon them. So as when their sins are pardoned, their hearts are more sanctified and their spirits comforted, then comes he to see the fruit of his labor and is comforted thereby, for he is the more glorified by it. Yea, he is more pleased and rejoiced in this than themselves can be. And this keeps up in his heart, his care and his love until his children here below to water and refresh them every moment. Now, let me translate that for you. When we come to Jesus for mercy, for love, for help, in our anguish, in our confusion, and in our sin. You are following the flow of his own deepest desires, not resisting them. You know, we tend to think that when we turn to Jesus for help in our time of need and ask for mercy that in the midst of our sins, we tend to think that somehow we detract from him, lessen him, deplete him of something. But the opposite is true, just the opposite. Jesus surprises us by performing acts of grace and continually doing good to us, his members, by filling us. Everyone say filling. Filling. 
by filling us with all of his mercy, all of his grace, his comfort, and his joy. Christ himself becomes more and more full as he fills us. Now, listen. We know that Jesus, who is truly God, cannot become more full. He can't become more complete. He's not lacking. He's immortal. He's eternal. He is unchangeable in the same way that Father God is. But as a real man who hasn't stopped being a real man, Christ's heart is not drained when we come to him. His heart is fuller when we come to him. In other words, when we hold ourselves back and we stay hidden in darkness and in fear and failure, we not only miss out on our own increased comfort, we miss out on Christ's increased comfort because he lives for it. That's what he likes to do. It is what he loves to do. It's what he lives for. His joy and ours go up and down together. Now, is that biblical? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, that that phrase there, for the joy, what joy? What was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? Well, it's the joy of seeing us, his people, forgiven. Remember, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus was the high priest to put an end to all the high priests who offered, and and Jesus offered the final sacrifice for sin so that he could completely cover and wash away the sins of his people. And the statement that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God's throne, that statement is repeated over and over in Hebrews. In fact, we can read it in Hebrews 3, or 1, 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8, 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now in all of these texts, Jesus' position at the right hand of God, it is tied to his priestly work of atonement. See, the priest is the bridge between God and humanity. The priest was responsible for for reconnecting heaven to earth. 
Jesus did this supremely with his own ultimate and final sacrifice, purifying his people once and for all, washing away all of our sins. And it was the joyful expectation of seeing us, his people, become clean in such a way that it cannot be undone. That joy carried him through his arrest, through his torture, through his death, through his burial, and through to his resurrection. And as we engage and partake in the work of atonement today, and we turn to Christ for forgiveness, fellowship with him in spite of our sins, we capture the deepest desire and joy of Jesus. Now this relates to some other New Testament texts like Luke 15, 7. It says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Everyone say more joy. joy. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy in a perfect place. How does that happen? Jesus wants his own joy even to overlap our joy when we start living in the fullness of his love. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 17, 13, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my, fulfilled, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants us to draw strength from his love. But the only qualified people to do so are sinners who are in need of this very undeserved love. And he doesn't just want us to be forgiven. He wants us. How does Jesus even talk about his own deepest desires? He says in 1724 of John, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you looked, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, if you're like me sometimes, you can be a little skeptical, right? Sometimes this is, these places are, it's where our skeptical hearts like to tread. Well, we need to be a little careful about our skepticism. Because we don't want to be arrogant or too bold in drawing on Christ's mercy, right? You know, shouldn't, we, shouldn't we be restrained and let's be realistic, you know? Let's, let's be careful not to pull too much from him. Does that sound right? Well, let me ask you this. Would a father whose child is suffocating... Want his child to draw on the oxygen tank in a very restrained and reasonable manner. Slow down, son. Don't take too much. 
See, our problem is we don't take the Bible seriously when it comes to the truth. The truth that we are the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are his own body parts. And what does the head, Christ, think about his own flesh? It says in Ephesians 5.29, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So how do we heal an injured body part? Well, we treat it. We bandage it. We protect it. We give it time to heal. Because this body part is more than just a friend. Your neighbor who lives next door. No, it is part of us. And the same thing goes for Christ and all of us believers. We are a part of him. Remember when Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. Remember, he appears to Saul, who was, and Saul was out, he was killing Christians, and he's on his way to Damascus to do some more killing. And Jesus encounters him. And what does he say to him? It says in Acts 9.4, he says, after he, his, the brilliant light of Jesus knocks Saul off his horse and Saul falls to the ground, it says, after falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, he was out killing Christians. Why would Jesus say that? Because we are the body of Christ. And if we are his body, Jesus is comforted when we tap into his rich atoning work because his own body is getting healed. Are you struggling even with physical healing? Your body is his body. He wants it healed. And Jesus is able to sympathize with us. In fact, in Hebrews 4.15, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, one reality that can be difficult to convince some of us who gets discouraged from time to time is that although... Christ is right now in heaven. He's still open and tender in his embrace of us as sinners and sufferers, just like when he was on the earth. See, we have to be reminded through the biblical evidence that the risen Lord, who is alive and well in heaven today, is not somehow less approachable. He's not less compassionate than he was when he walked on the earth. I mean, what would, it, what would it be like for a friend to take our two hands and just place them onto the chest of Jesus? Just close your eyes for a moment. 
I just want you to, if you can, picture Jesus and just picture yourself putting your two hands on his chest. My friend came along and, and just put them there. I want you to feel his heart. Your hand's like a stethoscope. You're on his beating heart. Our, heart, our hands feeling the chest-pounding strength of Christ's deepest affections and love. You can open your eyes because we have a friend who's doing that for us. That friend is Hebrews 4.15. But to understand that, we've got to step back just a little bit and then look at the larger context here of Hebrews 14. So we've got to look at verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who is Passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, say confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, verse 14 and verse 16, they both contain an exhortation. First one is faithfulness in the doctrine of God. When he says, let us hold fast to our confession. It's our first exhortation. Do this. You need to do this. Hold fast to, your, to the, your doctrine of God. And then the second one is confidence in fellowship with God. Which is where that verse, or that in 16, it says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence. Two exhortations. Now, the word for, at the beginning of the verse, 15 means that verse 15 is based on verse 14. And the word then, which is at the beginning of verse 16, means that verse 15 is based on verse 16 as well. So in other words, verse 15 is the anchor of the passage with the surrounding verses drawing out its implications. And the weight of verse 15, which is the anchor here, the weight of that is in the pure solidarity of Jesus Christ with us as his people. Right? Solidarity just means I'm, I'm with you. I'm in this with you. Now, it's sometimes our natural thoughts tell us, you know, in the natural we know Jesus is with us. By our side, he's present and helping. When life is going well, oh, Jesus right here with me. I'm rocking it. That's how I know. He's with me. My life's going easy. Going smooth. No problems. He must be with me. 
But this verse says the opposite. It says that in our weakness, everyone say weakness. Weakness. Say my weakness. This verse says that in our weakness, Jesus sympathizes with us. Now that word sympathize here, it's a compound word that's formed from a prefix meaning with, like in our English prefix co, and it's connected with the verb to suffer. So sympathy here is not, it's not cold, it's not shallow. You know, Jesus isn't just giving us pity from a distance. When Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, it is a profound solidarity. It's, the, it's, it's like parents with their children. In fact, it's even deeper than that. You see, in our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it's not. Now, again, nothing in his divinity is threatened by this. This sympathy is drawing his heart towards our suffering. His human nature participates in our problems in every way possible. His love cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain and in suffering. Now, this passage in Hebrew, it's like taking us by the hand and it's leading us deep into the heart of Christ. It's showing us the unbridled love of Jesus for his people. But when we go back to chapter 2, it says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect and that he himself suffered when he was tempted. And verse 15 again tells us why Jesus was so close and with us, his people, in our pain. He was tempted, or in other words, tested. He was tempted as we are. And not only that, but in every way as we are. All of the ways that you and I are tested and tempted. And so the reason why Jesus stands so close to us is because the difficult path that we follow is not unique to us. Jesus traveled this path himself. It's not just that Jesus can save us from trouble like a doctor prescribing medicine. It's also before any relief gets to us. He is right there with us in our sorrows and our troubles. Like a doctor who has endured same illness as we have. Now, Jesus didn't get infected like we did. Jesus was a sinless human man. And it's important to to think that he was a a sinless human man, not a sinless uh, superman. Jesus woke up and he had bad head. Might have had acne when he turned 13. I don't know. But the Bible teaches us that he came as an ordinary man to an ordinary people. 
So he knows what it's like to be thirsty and hungry. He knows what it's like to be despised and rejected and belittled and embarrassed and misunderstood and falsely accused and suffocated and tortured and killed. He knows what it's like to be alone. His friends abandoned him when he needed them the most. If Jesus was alive today, probably every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have removed him by now. But you know what? Jesus is never going to delete us from his friend list. Now, the key to understanding the meaning of Hebrews 4.15 is to, we've got to place equal emphasis on the two phrases, in every respect and yet without sin. All of our weaknesses, actually all of our lives, are tainted with sin. If sin was the color blue, We would be Smurfs. And sometimes, though, we, we, we like to think that, you know, if sin was blue, then we just have occasional blue moments, right? But actually, everything we say, everything we do and think, it's tainted with a little bit of blue all the time. But this isn't the way it is for Jesus. There's nothing blue in his life. He was holy. And he was innocent. And he was unstained. And he is separate from sinners in that way. So we need to think about the phrase in every way. In a way that maintains Jesus' sinlessness without diminishing its meaning. In other words, like this, this awful temptation that I'm experiencing, this painful trial that we go through, this bewildering confusion, he was there. In fact, his absolute purity tells us that he probably felt those pains more intensely than we as sinners ever could. I mean, just, just think about your own life for a moment. When relationships turn sour, feelings of worthlessness overwhelm you, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems like our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, we can't figure out our emotions. Long-term, long-time friends let us down. Family member betrays us. When we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at or made fun of. When the fallen world hits us and makes us want to give up. It's right there. It is right there that we have a friend who knows exactly what that test is like. And he sits close to us. 
and he embraces us. And he is with us. Because our tendency is that, to think that when life gets harder, we're more alone. The deeper we sink into pain and the deeper we sink into a sense of isolation. But the Bible corrects us because our pain never exceeds what Jesus himself shares in. We are never alone. Say, I am never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, it seems so unique to you, that was endured by him in the past, and it is now carried by him in the present. <clears throat> Hebrews 4.14, again, it tells us that Jesus has ascended to heaven. That doesn't mean he's distant or aloof from our pain. Our difficulties bring about a deep feeling in Christ far beyond what we would ever know. Now, what about our sins? Should we be discouraged because Jesus cannot join us in our deepest pain and guilt and shame when we sin? Well, the answer is no, for two reasons. First, Jesus' sinlessness means that he knew temptation better than we do. C.S. Lewis, he made this point when he was talking about a man walking against the wind. And he said, when the wind of temptation was strong enough, the man has to lay down. He has to give in. Which means he wouldn't have known what life was like 10 minutes later if he would have just kept walking. The difference is Jesus never laid down. He endured all of our temptations and trials without ever giving in. Therefore, he knows the full strength of temptation better than we do. Because we don't, we don't put up that fight. We lay down. We say yes to sin. So he knows it better than any. Only he really knows the cost. And then the second reason is that our only hope is that the one who shares all our pain shares in it as the pure and holy one. Our sinless high priest is not the one who needs rescued, but he is the one who does the rescuing. Amen. This is why we can come to him and get mercy and find grace because he's not trapped in the pit of sin with us. Amen. We're in the muck and we're struggling. We don't look and here's Jesus and he's like, hey, help me too. I don't. 
Nope. He alone can pull us out. His sinlessness is our salvation. Jesus alone can lift us out of the pit of sin that we wallow in. And not only can he alone pull us out of the hole of sin, he alone desires to climb in and bear our burdens and get us out. He is able to sympathize. He co-suffers with us. If you're in Christ, then you have a friend who in your sorrow and in my sorrow, as a friend, he will never phone in a pep talk from a distance. He can't stand being at a distance when we suffer. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too attached to yours. Now, I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. We all struggle with feeling distant from the Lord. We feel like we're blowing it in life. The things we know we should do, we don't do. The things we wish we wouldn't do, that's the stuff we do. I want you to just invite Christ to come near you in this very moment. I want you to see him with you. I want you to have him hold you and embrace you. Maybe he needs to cry with you. Maybe he needs to tell you and remind you of his love. Just let him do what he needs to do in this moment. sin that you just won't let go of. He's here to heal you if you'll let him. That compromise. The suffering that you've been enduring. Just let him comfort you in this moment. As we keep our eyes closed, some of you are here and you've never even asked Jesus to be your Savior before. 
You don't even know him as Savior yet. But right now, you know you need that. You know there's something in you right now that's crying out for a Savior like this. If you were in this place today, with our eyes closed, and as you were imagining Jesus, if you were in this place today, and you were ready to say, I need Jesus, I want you to just raise your hand up high so I can see it. Just raise it up. Now is the moment you need Jesus. Thank you. I see that hand. Maybe you're here and you prayed that prayer a long time ago. You've walked away, way far. There's maybe not much in your life that looks Christian. But you're ready today. You're ready to turn around and come right back. You want to rededicate your life. If you're in this place and you want to come right back, he is not angry. He is waiting for your return. And if that is you, just raise your hand so I can see it. Thank you. Anyone else? All right, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I would like everyone to pray this prayer with me. If you want Jesus for the first time, pray this prayer. If you are rededicating your life in a new and powerful way, pray this prayer. But Jesus loves you. And he is with you in the midst of your suffering. So let's just pray this prayer. Say, Father God, thank you for Jesus. I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And Jesus is the only one. So today, God, I ask Jesus to come into my heart, to be my Lord, to be my Savior. And to be my healer. To walk with me all the days of my life. And I will surrender all of me to him. Holy Spirit, come now and fill me. Fill me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. You have control. You own me now. I am yours. And I receive this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or you rededicated your life, when we close out, I want you to come see me. You can see Eric. We want to just bless you and talk to you for just a second. But here's your action plan for the week. Just 
some questions for you to ask yourself in your quiet time this week. What makes Jesus full of joy? What was the joy awaiting Jesus on the other side of the cross? Based on Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, how do you experience Jesus when trials come your way? And then this week we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Please continue with the Here Journal or the Lexio Divina. And we are memorizing James 1, 3. So why don't you all stand up with me? All you graduation people, you're welcome. It's 10 till. If you want to give me money, I'll accept it. Well, let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for Jesus so much. I'm so grateful for Jesus. And we are grateful. We are his body. We thank you that he's healing us and he's caring for us. And he feels the pains that we feel. And he's here to comfort us and to come near in the worst of our times. In the worst moments of our life. In the greatest failures of our life. In the greatest sins that we walk in and commit. You are here with us. And I pray today, God, that you would remind us this week. When we get out of this great atmosphere of your presence and get into the mundane work and school or whatever we got to do this week, and we just need you near us. Be near us this week. Cover us in your love. Encounter us in the word. Encounter us in our quiet times. We want to walk with you with all that we are because you own it. You own all of us. We are your body. And we thank you for it, Father. Today we want to bless those graduating people and the families. God, just let today be a day of celebration, a day of honor, a day of destiny. So we bless them all today, God. We thank you for your presence here today. We thank you for your word. You deserve all our love, all our praise, all our honor. And we love you in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. amen. If you prayed and received Christ or rededicated your life, please come to the front. Come see us. We'd love to talk with you quickly.